Well, we're off to a great start so far in this new season. Um, open your Bibles, if you will, to 1 Corinthians. Eight to ten-year-olds are already gone. Uh, but if any of you are remaining, you are dismissed if you'd like to go to your class. We start a study through the book of 1 Corinthians, and it's privileged to have each of the 66 books of God's Word, and I've been praying throughout that our church would be strengthened, edified, that our love for Christ would grow, our love for one another would grow because of this book. I think there's a lot of things in here for us to understand and know and to, and to live by. I've entitled uh, this first section, chapters one, chapter 1, 1 through 9, A Beautiful Church in a Filthy City. Now, if you know anything about the church in Corinth, you're already questioning my title. A beautiful church? After all, we're the ones that drive by places like Corinth Baptist Church and kind of shake our heads thinking, who was on the naming committee of that church? Or Corinth Presbyterian or Corinth Bible, whatever it may be. The church of Corinth has a bad reputation, has for 2,000 years, but The book doesn't start off talking about their sins. The book doesn't start off talking about their weaknesses. The book doesn't start off talking about their immaturity. Doesn't start off talking about their factions, their divisiveness over their preferred teachers. Doesn't start off talking about how they prefer themselves even in the Lord's table. Doesn't start off talking about how prideful they are in terms of using their spiritual gifts. Doesn't start off talking about those things. It will talk about those things. But it starts off in a way that is extremely encouraging. Maybe all the more encouraging to us in light of who we know they were being or they were acting like. This is a beautiful church in a filthy city. The problem is, as you'll see starting in verse 10 through the rest of the book of chapter 1, is that they were becoming a filthy church because they let the culture define how they operated. So there was filth, there was sin, but at the heart of who they were, they were saved by God the Father through the work of Jesus Christ, his Son. So I want to read that full section to you. We're only going to cover verses 1 through 3 this morning, but I want to read chapter 1, 1 through 9 for you, and I want you to see why we would say this is a beautiful church in terms of where they stood before God, not in terms of how they acted, but in terms of where they stood and what God had done in their lives. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 1. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless, In the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul starts off thanking God for them. 
He starts off talking about spiritual truths that are true of them even as they wrongly follow the Lord, even as they wrongly understand how they should be living among one another and in the world. He is still thankful for them. You could liken it to maybe someone you knew growing up, maybe, maybe a niece or nephew of yours or a child of yours or a friend of yours, and they're young and they grow into their teen years and they're a beautiful young woman, beautiful or a handsome young man. It just this, you see them and there's joy. And then as they get older in life, they fall into some, some sin, maybe drug and alcohol abuse, things like that, and it changes the way they look, their body. And so when people first look at them, they don't see beauty, but you know them. You knew them from before, and you know that this is a beautiful girl. This is a handsome boy. This is, this is a special girl, a special boy, but they have marred themselves because of what they decided to do for so long. And so there's, there's a truth that you know that maybe other people might not know. I think one of the greatest kept secrets about the Corinthian church is that he cared about them. His son died for them. He planned that his son would die for those specific people. They were precious to him. And the Apostle Paul says, again, we'll look at this next week, that God is faithful to them. They were called by God into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, and he's going to see to it that they stand at the end. That's a special thing. And it's something that we have to remember because we're going to spend time going through sins of the Corinthians and we're going to spend time looking at the things that they needed to understand. And it's real easy to think that they were somehow not special to God and that's not true. You know what God does for his people who are special to him? He teaches them. He rebukes them. He guides them. He confronts them. And he keeps them close. God loves this church. That's why he sent this apostle to teach them, to care for them, care for their souls. As we look through verses 1 through 3, we can start off by noticing what's, what's at the core of who this church is. Who are these people? What's the truth that we should understand about them? So I've entitled this message in the first three verses, The Essence of a Local Church. What's true about them? What's the essence of the local church? You might think of churches and you might define them by who their preacher is. That's so-and-so's church. Or you might define them by the wonderful Christmas programs that they put on. Oh, that's the church that has the live animals every Christmas. Churches get defined by certain extra things. But what really defines a church, you see it in verse 2 there. To the gathering of God, the ecclesia of God, the church of God, the God that's in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. And so we'll look at what makes up a local church. What is the true essence of a local church? Who really were these people at their heart? And as we look at who the Corinthians were, and that's really kind of our theme for the morning, who are the Corinthians? It also teaches us who we are as Canyon Bible Church of Prescott. Who is this local church back then 2,000 years ago, and who are we? Are these truths true of us as well? And we know that they are. So we'll start in verse 1 with the first thing that's true of the Corinthians and every local church. A local church, or the Corinthian church, is a people with an apostolic foundation. 
a people with an apostolic foundation. This church, you could say, humanly speaking, was founded by Paul. God, divinely speaking, is the one that founded this church, and he used Paul, the apostle, to establish this church. Verse 1, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. Apostle, there, that word messenger, think messenger. Paul is by the will of God. God determined to make Paul a messenger of Christ Jesus. God the Father determined that this person that hated Christians, oversaw the murder of Christians, persecuted Christians, God had a desire, God had a will, God had a plan that that one would actually become a messenger of Jesus Christ. Paul didn't choose God because one day he thought, you know what, I've been kind of going back and forth between two opinions and I'll choose Christ. No, no, clearly God interrupted his path of sin and turned him into an apostle, messenger of Jesus Christ. I'm going to have you turn to a few places just as we get the background of 1 Corinthians this morning. Uh, Turn to Acts chapter 9 for that account. Some of you know this, but some of you don't. I think it's good for us to rehearse it and see just how much this was the will of God and not the will of Paul. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. At the time he's named Saul, Acts 9-1 starts out this way, but Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Now stop right there. 1 Corinthians 1.1, Paul is a messenger by the will of God the Father, sent by Jesus Christ the Son. Previously, Acts chapter 9 here, he's breathing threats and murders against the disciples of Jesus. So, two ends of the spectrum, right? Paul's not a Christian in Acts chapter 9 verse 1. Continuing on, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, the way of Jesus, if he found any Christians, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. Here's where the will of God interrupts. A light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you'll be told what you are to do. Paul's not in charge of his life. God is. God has a plan for Paul's life. And it's going to include the opposite of killing the church. It's going to be for the building up of the church. So when Paul says, I'm an apostle by the will of God, you can take him at his word. He's an apostle by the plan of God, not his own plan. He didn't scheme this plan when he was 12 years old. This is not his plan. This is by the will of God. Now, Paul was called to preach the gospel. He preached it to Jews and Gentiles, but his ministry became, as it turns out later on, mostly to Gentiles. He would preach to both groups, but he would preach starting off in Jewish synagogues, and then often they would reject God. Some would accept God. Some would repent and turn from their sin, but then he would, he would move from the Jews who largely would reject God, and he would move to the Gentiles, and a number of Gentiles would be saved all over that 
that location in Paul's day. So Paul's called to preach to the Gentiles. God radically changes his life. And on his second missionary journey, he's going around preaching the gospel. At first, the Christian disciples are like, uh, we're not going to listen to him. Do you know who that guy is? So he had to be validated. He had to be accepted by the leaders of the church in Jerusalem. They had to give credibility. Yes, this guy's with us. Believe it or not, this guy is a follower of Jesus now. So Paul would go out and preach, go on these missionary journeys. On his second missionary journey, he comes to an important city in that world. He comes to Corinth. And that's where we're at in our letter. In his second, ministry, second missionary journey, Paul comes to Corinth, and we find that in Acts 18. So turn to Acts 18. It's a wonderful story. <clears throat> Acts 18, listen to this. After Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudia commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. So he finds this couple that have fled because of persecution. They fled Rome, and they are here in Corinth. They are believers in Christ. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked for they were tent makers by trade. And here's what Paul would do. He reasoned in the synagogue, again, a Jewish community who don't have as a practice the worship of Jesus Christ. He would start there. He would go and reason in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. What's he trying to persuade them? That Jesus is the Christ. Turn to Zechariah 9. Turn to Malachi chapter 3. Turn to Isaiah 53. Jesus is the one prophesied. That's what he would do in the synagogue. Verse 5. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. It's a name for someone who worshipped God and didn't yet understand fully about Christ, but would come to know Christ. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. So Paul would go in the synagogue. Most of the Jews rejected him. What are you saying? Jesus Christ, the crucified one, isn't the one, isn't the Messiah. They, they would revile him, go after him. But the leader of the synagogue came to faith in Jesus. Wouldn't stay the leader of the synagogue long, by the way. Didn't go over well with the rest of the Jews. Christmas, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid. But go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I'm with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. That's God telling Paul, you keep talking, because I have people who will, have not yet, who will respond to the gospel. I have people, you keep talking. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, that's the region that Corinth is in, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, 
If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O oh Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. I mean, if this was a big deal or something violent, I would listen. Verse 15, but since it's a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourself. I refuse to be judge of these things. Sounds a lot like Pontius Pilate, right? Before Jesus. Uh, it doesn't matter to me. You take care of it yourself. So did the Jews take care of it themselves? You bet they did. And he drove them from the tribunal, and they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue. So get this straight. There was a ruler of the synagogue earlier. His name was Crispus. He became a follower of Christ as Paul was preaching in the synagogues. Now there's a new synagogue leader named Sosthenes. Evidently, he's warmed up to Paul's message, this gospel message. They do the, <coughs> excuse me, the Jews seize him and beat him in front of the tribunal, but Gallio paid no attention to this. So there's a man named Sosthenes that was the leader of the synagogue there in Corinth. He evidently became a follower of Christ and was beaten for it. 1 Corinthians 1.1 1, 1, who does Paul say is greeting the Corinthians? Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. The Corinthians would have known this man, Sosthenes. They would have known that he was the one beaten early on in his following of Christ. That should have carried some weight with them. They should have paid attention to the letter all the more. There's reason in verse 1, a couple reasons to pay attention to this letter. For the Corinthian church and even for our church. Paul the Apostle, by God's plan, wrote it. That should get us to sit up in our seats. Okay, this isn't just another document. God wrote this and gave this message to the Apostle Paul. And it comes from Sosthenes as well, someone who suffered for his faith in Jesus Christ. That's the start of the church in Corinth. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. Now, all churches, all New Testament churches, have a, an apostolic foundation. We come from the line of the apostles. Here was the plan. Jesus came, sent by the Father, lived a perfect life. He died for the sins of people that he would save. He died for them. He was raised again, showing that we will be raised and showing that God accepted that sacrifice. Jesus is the one, the only one that can make us right with God. God raised him from the dead because he died for sinners. And Jesus, the night before he died and when he was going to go to heaven, after that ascend to heaven, he said to his disciples, those in the upper room, he said, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit and the Spirit's going to lead you into all truth. What do you mean by that? The Spirit's going to speak to you and you're going to note, you're going to write, you're going to make known to the churches, you're going to make known to my followers what they need to understand. And those apostles are the ones that gave us our New Testament. That's why Ephesians chapter 2, listen to 2, 19 and 20. Listen to these words. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So the New Testament church is told that you're built on the foundation of the prophets, short for Old Testament, and the foundation of the apostles. What Paul says, pay attention to. What John says, pay attention to. What Peter says, pay attention to. That's the foundation we're built upon. That's the foundation the Corinthian church is built upon. If you, if you go out in the streets and you take 
any group of people and they say, hey, we're going to try to connect with God. That, that's usually, usually something bad is coming after that statement. But we're going to try to connect with God. If they don't connect through what the apostles taught, they're not connecting with God in the right way. The apostles taught the coming of Jesus, the death and resurrection of Jesus, the future return of Jesus, and how to worship him, follow him as a disciple, how to trust in him, be reconciled to God through him by faith. That's what the apostles taught. Our faith is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. All local churches are built on that foundation. So when you ask the question, who started Canyon Bible Church of Prescott? How'd this thing start eight years ago? You could say, and there's some truth to it in a sense, well, Canyon Bible Church of Prescott Valley kind of started this church, church planted. That, that makes sense in some ways. You could say the original members started this church. That makes sense in some way. You could say the elders who originally started. That makes sense in some ways. The leaders. There, there's certain sense there. But God is the one who started the church through the ministry of people like the Apostle Paul. We believe what Paul says in this book. Because God is speaking through him. So this church is a special church. The Corinthian church is a special church founded on the right things, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what does that mean for us as we start? Friends, take this book seriously. I was thinking about this while we were gone, you know, reading, I, I read novels, I read Christian books, I just, just reading the news and Twitter, just reading, understanding, seeing what's going on here and there. And I thought about the fact that this book, 1 Corinthians specifically, is a greater treasure than anything I read on my sabbatical other than the scriptures. We want to know about everything. We want to know about the secret things happening in government, the backroom deals, the backroom plans. We want to know what's happening with our favorite athlete, whatever it may be. We want to find out things. We're constantly wanting to know things. And the problem is we can't know everything. We can't be everywhere at all times. But we can know this book. God wrote a book, sent a man, Jesus Christ sent a man, to be an announcer of the gospel and how to live rightly before him in a filthy world. We should know 1 Corinthians better than we know any other document other than the other 65 books in the Bible. We should know this book. All the more so because it's written to a church that is immature in many ways. And even mature Christians can sometimes fall into immaturity. Some in here not, have not been Christians for very long. There's nothing wrong with that. Praise the Lord, they're in Christ. A book like 1 Corinthians is a perfect book to see what God teaches about marriage and singleness and money and the resurrection of the dead. Not just the resurrection of Jesus, but the resurrection of all of us. What the Bible teaches about preferring one another and laying down your rights so that one another brother or sister isn't stumbled. This is a perfect book for a new believer to understand. This is a perfect book for a new believer who's concerned about whether people will see them as credible or they're not going to believe what I tell them about Jesus. I mean, they've got all these degrees and things like that. Listen, 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 is for you. The wisdom of God is foolishness to the world, but he puts their folly to shame. The message of God, the gospel of God is the power of God. This is a book for all Christians. There are sins in this book that we do. There are sins in this book that we do and we know. 
There are sins in this book that we do and we pretend that we don't. This is going to be a good book for us. But you have to remember 1 Corinthians 1, 1 through 9. We are a people, even though we can sometimes look like the world, we're a people that have been sanctified by God. We're a people that are kept by God. We're a people that he's teaching. We're a people who have what we need for life and godliness. We're a people whom God loves. We stand with him perfect in his sight with the righteousness of Jesus. So we start off with this apostolic foundation. So did the Corinthian church. And secondly, we notice that there are people with a unique calling. The Corinthian church starts off, there are people with an apostolic foundation of which all local churches are, true churches. And there are people with a unique calling. The Corinthian believers became different than other Corinthians. Prescottonians who are Christians are different than Prescottonians who are not Christians. We see things differently. We've got different goals, different hopes, different dreams, different loves, different prayers. We're different. And he explains that in verses 2 to 3. God determined to give this people a different calling. Verse 2. To the church of God that is in Corinth. Let's stop right there. To the gathering, the church, the gathering, the assembled ones. To the gathering of God, the gathering started by God, the gathering that happened because of God. God initiated a certain group of people and gathered them together. The church of God that is in Corinth. God determined that his messenger would go to this wicked city and he would preach the message of reconciliation from man to God, a way that man could be right with God. He determined that his messenger would go to the city and people would believe. Those people were grabbed from that city and assembled into a new people. So now you've got the Corinthians who love the world who are slaves to Satan, and you've got this new people that were taken out of that group and put here in the church, the gathering of God. God's the one that initiated that. Now, to know a little bit about Corinth, and we'll get into this more as we go through the book, but Corinth was a prosperous city. It hadn't been a prosperous city for long. It was actually destroyed by the Romans. And then about 90 years before this, Julius Caesar built it up again, and it became a prosperous city. People in Corinth were successful in commerce. Many of you know that it was uh, between uh, key trade routes, so a lot of people would come in and go out, sell their goods. Uh, all sorts of industry flourished in Corinth. People were highly competitive in the business world in Corinth. People were cutthroat. They would get ahead. They would. They, they, they would. They would. They were very competitive. Uh, financially speaking, and in business, and they were successful. It was an international city. They valued philosophy and higher education and learning. It looked a lot like America or a lot of first world nations, developed nations, is what Corinth looked like. In Corinth, just like developed nations and all nations today, there was sexual perversion, competition, pride, arrogance, and these things were creeping into the Corinthian church. Now, what's the essence of a church? Who are they? They're ones called 
out of one group, the world, and into another group, the church of God, the family of God. That's who they are. That's the essence of who they are. But sometimes those people let the world's values creep in to how they operate. And that's what this church was doing. It's a good principle to understand that we are more prone to adopt our culture's values than we really think that we are. It's easy to criticize certain sins that we all might not be tempted to do. Look at all the things they're doing out there. But there are also sins that the world does that are in here too. And it's important to understand that as a humble follower of Christ. We can be like the world too. Look at all the sexual immorality in the world. Look at all the lying in the world. Look at all the abuse in the world. And traces of those things can be in here. Or acceptable sins could be in, in any church. The world gossips. So does the church sometimes. The world doesn't give the benefit of the doubt. Closes the ears. I don't want to believe the truth. I, just, I believe this. Happens in churches too. We can look more like the world than we admit. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Now this is such good news here. To those set apart, called to be different in Christ Jesus. That word sanctified there, when you think of sanctification, a lot of times people think of growth in holiness and becoming more and more like Jesus. And that's, that's a good way to think about it. But this word here is kind of pointing to the beginning of that process. So you could say to those converted in Christ Jesus, for those set apart to be in Christ Jesus, and it kind of looks at the time when they were set apart, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Uh, and you don't have to turn there. Just listen to this as I read this. In Acts 26, Paul is giving a defense of his ministry. He's giving a defense of his ministry because he's on trial. And he talks about what we read in Acts chapter 9. He talks about, you know, that day I fell off my horse, here's what happened. He kind of rehearses that for us. But I want you to hear the language he uses. He says this. He's referring to what God told him. And God said, I'm sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So God told Paul, listen, I'm going to take you from, I'm going to announce through you that God is taking people out of darkness into light for the forgiveness of their sins, but for more than that also, and to be different by faith in me. So do not think, do not think that the Christian life is about believing in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, period. That's a start. You're forgiven of your sins based on what Jesus has done, and then you live the life that he has for you that's different than you lived before. You now live in him, raised to new life in Christ. We rehearsed it earlier in our service. So it's, it's a unique calling the people in Corinth have. It's not that they said, oh, Paul came into our synagogue and he preached the gospel one day, and I believed, I believed that I was forgiven of my sins, and that I lived just the, the same way the rest of my life. That's not the plan of God. He goes to a group that is at war against him, that hates him, that doesn't love one another rightly, that's, that's in the kingdom of darkness. And he, by his love and by his mercy, sends his son to die for people in that group. 
He sends his son to die for people in that group, and he takes them from that group, those people. And as he takes them, they're changed. He takes them, they're forgiven, and they're changed, and they have this new life. So they go to soccer practice differently than they used to. They engage in politics differently than they used to. They now, they now love their families like Jesus would love their families, not like the way they used to. They handle their money differently than they used to. Before it was for them, now it's to be used for the glory of God. He forgives as he changes them, and he changes them into his son's image. That's what he does. All Christians are changed ones, set-apart ones. They're different. They're set apart for different things. So those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. That word saint means holy one. Now, when you hear saints, don't think of Roman Catholic Church like super Christians, according to them. A Christian, a true Christian, is a saint. A true Christian is a holy one. They've been declared holy by God, and they're becoming more and more holy in all reality, in day-to-day living. They're sanctified in Jesus, called to be saints, holy ones. And then this, curious why this phrase is there. With all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. When you want to understand what Bible passages mean, you could ask the question, why is that in this book? And we'll ask that question often as we go through 1 Corinthians. Why did Paul write that? Why is this here? So you could ask the question, why does he remind the Corinthians that they've called upon the Lord and so have other people throughout the world? You know why? Because the Corinthians needed to remember that. As one writer said, they weren't the only pebble on the beach. The Corinthian believers struggled with pride. They weren't the only ones who were calling out to Jesus for mercy and for power. They weren't the only ones who depended on Jesus. As a matter of fact, he'll see to it that they help other churches take a collection, uh, take collection for, for helping other churches financially. They're part of a bigger picture here. Yes, they're a local church with local leaders, but they're part of a group of people all throughout the world, world that call upon the name of the Lord. And that's important for people to understand. You see this in the ministry of the Apostle Paul. He assumes that it would be good for this leader to leave this church and go to a different church. This is all in God's kingdom plan, right? He assumes that it's good for this church to give some of their money to go to this other church. We're all children of God and we need to help one another. He assumes this little C, not capital C, little C Catholic spirit, together spirit, united spirit among the people of God who call upon the name of the Lord. And he writes that to this church because they needed to hear it. This was a proud group. He's not going to let them get away with that. Every Christian is valuable. There is no central church in the world that is more, more uh, pleasing, as it were, to God. His son died for the sins of people in all churches throughout the world. His son loves them all. We should care about our brothers and sisters. That's why we pray for people in other churches. That's why we send people to Nicaragua this summer to go and strengthen other churches. That's why people have come to us and strengthened us. I mean, you were wonderfully blessed by Chris Newkirk and Bobby Blakey, weren't you? I was listening to those. Praise the Lord. Those churches sent their pastor for a day to come and be a a blessing to us, and that's the way it should be. Christians caring about one another. That's, That's one reason we hate the competitive spirit 
in local churches. If we are who we are because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, now there are false churches all around, but if we are who we are because of the gospel of Jesus Christ and we hold on to his word and we cry out to him for mercy and for power and we trust in him, we have brothers and sisters all over the world. And you know this, you have unbelieving family members and you know that when you meet a Christian from Bangladesh or Nicaragua or wherever it may be, there's an instant bond that you have with them, right? That unfortunately you might not even have with your closest family members. There's something eternal that you have there. So Paul reminds this church, you're called to be saints with all of those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Paul expects them to care about other churches, other Christians, and we'll see that come to fruition later on in his letter. To call upon the name of the Lord, to appeal for God for mercy and power. To appeal to Jesus and who he is for mercy and power. Romans 10.13 says this, what a beautiful promise. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. God is so good. When you call upon him for mercy because you know yourself to be a sinner, and you say, I need you to shelter me from your own wrath, and you go to him, trusting in his mercy and his power, he never turns that person away. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So anybody who's called upon the name of the Lord is immediately special to us, aren't they? Immediately special to us. And then he says this, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So you are a sanctified people. You're set apart for different things. Christian student, you're not just a Christian because all the other people are going to hell and you're going to heaven, end of story. No, no, now you have the life of Jesus and you live differently than the other students live in your class. Christian employee, you live differently than the other employees at your work. Christian mothers and fathers are different than the other mothers and fathers without Christ. We now have the ability to be like Christ. We've been saved by him. We will never pay for our sins and we're empowered by his Holy Spirit to live like him. We are different. I mean, I can't explain how huge this is. All throughout Prescott today, there are little gatherings of people that are so different than the rest of Prescott. We have the spirit of Jesus in us. We can love better than anybody loves in the world. We can forgive better than anybody forgives in the world. We can be patient with one another better than anybody can. We, we know truth. That's us. We know the future of the world, and it's not good for some, and it's glorious for others, and we get to tell people about that. We know these things. We're different. We're unique. And even when we look at this and we see the Corinthians and we see the uniqueness of the church, you have to say to yourself, why me? Why did you save me? I don't know. But he did. And I can't get over it. Why am I different than the kids I grew up with in high school that hate God and have ruined their lives and ruined the lives of other people? Why, why am I different from them? I'll give you a hint, it's not based on anything in me. It's because he's gracious. And right here, Paul is saying, you are a different people. You are saved by Jesus Christ. I'm, I've set you apart because of the work of Jesus Christ God has. You are different from other people and you've got some things to learn. 
You've got some things to grow in. So, how does he send them out to grow, to respond to this letter? In grace and in peace. That's how you live as a Christian in a filthy world. You are graced by God. You will never pay for your sins. You'll never be punished for them, I should say. You'll never be experiencing the wrath of God for your sins. And he will give you the grace to grow in the knowledge of him. He will give you the grace to grow as a disciple of him. He will give you that grace. He didn't just give you grace at salvation, and then now you do it on your own. He will give you what you need. He will also give you peace. You can live your Christian life trusting when the finances aren't right, when the person says that thing about you that isn't true, when the family is crumbling, there is a grace and a peace that accompanies the follower of Christ as they walk on their journey, being like him, waiting for him to return. There's grace and there is peace. What, these are words that we fly over so often because they're, so, they're in so many of Paul's letters, but how important they are as you seek to follow God every single day. As you wake up tomorrow morning, grab your Bible, read it, drink your coffee, go to work, drink more coffee, drink more coffee. As, as you go throughout your day tomorrow, you go with grace and peace as his child. We need that. So the church is a people with a unique calling. We're different. Not just forgiven, but we're called to live holy lives. And what a privilege that is to be able to even do that. The church is a people with an apostolic foundation. The church is a people with a unique calling. And we are privileged. I want to conclude by showing you something that I'm going to do, Lord willing, throughout our study of 1 Corinthians you may have seen it in your worship guide there. There's a little thing that you can scan with your phone. Uh, it's a passage reflection page. Um, I was convicted over this summer in thinking through teaching you and wanting to, you to benefit from the Word of God that I don't talk enough about responding to the Bible. <laughs> we learn the Bible. Oh, I know what it means. I know what Corinth was all about. I know how Corinth started. Okay, I, I know what sanctified means. All right, amen, let's go. But does it affect us? Is tomorrow morning any different now based on what we've learned? And so I've given you a sermon or a passage reflection page. And what it is, you can read it there. Uh, it's on the screen. Um, you probably can't read that. I mean, I can't read that from here. But um, it... Oh, there we go. Man, you guys are brilliant. Okay. Uh, I'm just going to read this to you, okay? Uh, I just wanted you to hear what we're trying to do in responding to the word as we go through 1 Corinthians. This page is meant for... This page is meant for individuals, small group Bible studies, or one-on-one -on -one interactions. Since learning more about the text's meaning in our corporate gathering, I would encourage you to meditate on the passage again so that you might respond to God in praise and obedience. I've included some of my personal meditations that might benefit you. May reflection on this passage be used by God to conform you into the image of Christ. So I, do I don't ever want to be a people or a follower of Christ who hears the word and goes away from it unchanged. Blessed are the doers of the word not just the hearers. And so there's this sermon reflection page. On it are things like, how is the character of God demonstrated in this passage? Uh, what does this passage mean for our evangelism? What does this passage mean for our maturity in Christ? 
Is there any sin to confess or repent of based on this passage? And at the end, I put a little prayer to the Lord. And again, you, you can pray whatever prayer you want to him, but I just give a kind of one from my own mind and maybe it'll benefit you. But the point I'm trying to make here is an apostle by the will of God sent by Jesus wrote a letter to God's people. That's a huge deal. And we have that letter. And we get to study that letter. And here, here's what's even greater about it. The Lord uses an understanding of his word to change his people, to make them more like Jesus. That's what we get. We get God speaking to us in a way that will change us, bring him glory, do one another good, and all the while show Jesus Christ. And that brings joy to the believer. So maybe that sermon page will be a benefit to you, maybe not, but I hope at least whether you use that or not, you'll take the text that we go through on Sunday and, and bring your heart through it and be changed by it, by the power of the Spirit and for the glory of God. Let me pray together. Father, Thank you for it all. Thank you for calling us and for sanctifying us in your son. Make us increasingly holy people, unstained by worldly pride, sensuality, and a factious spirit. We are yours. We know that and we relish that. We love the standing that we have with you. We are sanctified and we are called. So God, graciously give us the motivation this week to live differently for you. We are pictures of Christ in the world. That's your plan. Energize our hearts to represent him and you well. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.